You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents Monster Talks, a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Kick-Ass News, Movie Therapy, and Therapist Uncensored. If you'd like to advertise on the show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. This episode contains a brief mention of suicide. If you or someone in your life is struggling, please know that there is help available 24 hours in the U.S. by dialing 988. Thank you. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Hey there, listeners. We're back with part two of our coverage of monster pigs. Dr. John Mayer with the Savannah River National Laboratory in Aiken, South Carolina, has spent five decades studying pigs and was involved in several of the media sensation giant pig stories that were popular in the first decade of the 21st century. In part two of our interview, we will be covering specific cases and what the real story was behind them. If you missed part one, do check it out because it is chock full of interesting pig facts and help clear up some persistent myths about how these animals change when they go feral. Monster dog. Well, thanks for continuing this conversation with us, Dr. Mayer. I am so excited now because this has been a topic that I've been wanting to address since before we even created this show. Um, so uh, there were some really exciting news stories that came out about giant pigs. And when I was looking for an expert, I found you because of your pig research and then discovered that you're directly involved with uh, understanding these cases. Uh, so I am super yeah, stoked bonus. to talk about this. <laughs> so you want to... I think Hogzilla is going to follow me to my grave. But well, yes. <laughs> you want to kick this off, Karen? It's like... 
Yeah, yeah. So feral hogs in the media, uh, so as a reminder for people tuning in now, what's the difference between a feral and domestic pig? A feral pig is basically just a wild pig that is solely of domestic ancestry, either one or more generations removed from domestication. So if you've got a domestic pig that gets loose and goes wild, and again, domestic pigs go wilder quicker than any other species of domestic animal that we have, uh, mm -hmm. they would become, by definition, a, a feral pig. Feral pig, feral hog, feral swine, I'm not too worried about the noun. Uh, and then all of their offspring, assuming you don't get some wild boar genetic input into that population, would also be feral pigs. So mm -hmm. again, one or more generations removed from domestication. So you and I briefly talked about this offline when we were getting set up, but how big of a problem is the feral hog population in the United States? So how big in scope and how big of a damage? I mean, I know it causes a lot of farm damage, but... Do we have numbers on what that looks like? Well, if you go back in history, back into the, the 20, early part of the 20th century, uh, wild pigs, introduced wild pigs in the U.S., which were primarily feral pigs, wild pigs, solely domestic ancestry. You had a few populations of, of uh, either pure or hybridized Eurasian wild boar that had been brought in by wealthy sportsmen to provide a new huntable big game animal, and they stuck them in a fenced hunting preserve and pigs don't fence well either and they got out of all those so you had populations of mostly feral pigs but then some wild boar and some hybrids here in the u.s they were found in about 20 states and they numbered about 2 million animals uh starting the early part of the 20th century and then getting into the mid 20th century uh these animals began to pick up steam as a huntable big game resource and in the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s, you had a, a number of state game and fish departments that were trying to promote these animals as huntable big game, uh -oh. uh, even to the point that they were actively stocking them in, in certain areas. And they had a game status, and uh, they had a bag limit, and a, and a season, and whatnot. And you had to have a license. Wow. Uh, and so they were pushing all these animals, pushing all this on on, on uh on the hunters in this country is, is a new huntable big game resource. And mm -hmm. that whole program was, was very successful. Uh, and so what happened was a lot of people figured out that, Hey, these things are, are, are fun to hunt, even with a hint of danger, uh, doggone, they're good to eat, uh, even healthier for you than, than domestic pork. And in the form of a large boar, they can represent a pretty impressive trophy. Uh, mm -hmm. so, the interest in, in wild pigs as game animals just in the late 20th century just literally exploded. I call it the pig bomb. And it went yeah. off nationally. And so we went from 20 states and 2 million animals to we actually had a, a, a maximum of 48 states that, that reported the presence of these animals. And currently the, the numbers are uh, estimated to be around 7 million nationwide. Wow. Well, pigs are, again, they're opportunistic omnivores. It, they'll eat pretty much anything. Uh, and they're very active foragers. And in foraging, they can do a lot of damage, especially their rooting. And they, if there's an agricultural crop out there, they'll eat it. Uh, if there's a deer fawn they can find, they'll eat it. Uh, they tear up wetlands. Uh, they tear up golf courses. They tear up cemeteries. Uh, mm. 
they run into our vehicles to the tune of, of uh, around $100 million a year. Um, wow. They, they will, it's very rare, but they will attack people. Uh, we've had, that I know of, we've had five fatal wild pig attacks here in the U.S. since the 1800s. Uh, probably more, but that's that's all I've ever been able to dig up. We just most recent one was in uh, in coastal Texas in 2019. A uh, poor woman was attacked by a herd of wild pigs, and uh, they oh. killed her and and uh, actually ate part of her. Wow, very, 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 horrible, very, very grim incident. It's gruesome. So you you add up all this this damage, and you're you're looking well up into the billions of dollars every year in the U.S. is what these pigs are are. are uh, are costing us and currently we've got african swine fever that's that's bouncing around uh eurasia and north africa uh it has popped over and showed up in haiti here in the western hemisphere fortunately it hasn't made it into the u.s uh there is no cure there's no vaccine for african swine fever uh if you as a a uh, pig farmer, if your pigs suddenly contract or come up with African swine fever, uh, the only course of action that there is is they will depopulate. The government's going to come in and kill every one of your animals. Yep. Uh, mm. China in 2019 had an estimated, what was it? Uh, I think around 40 million domestic pigs. And when they got African swine fever, they ended up having to to euthanize over half of them. Wow! One of them were, it was so forty million, four hundred million. It was a lot of wild, mm-hmm. a lot of domestic pigs, and they they had to do them in. If it ever hit the U.S., if ASF ever got into the U.S., uh, that would be the death knell to the the U.S. pork industry, and would probably end up costing you know the 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 economic impact would be around uh, 900 billion dollars wow so you know how likely is that to happen well the usda is actively trying to trying to uh trying to keep that out of this country they're working very closely with our european partners they're also working on a vaccine haven't cracked that nut yet but they are working on it the concern is that uh it's going to come in from from uh, uh, Eastern Asia, it's going to come across the Pacific, and right. they have. There are people that show up at, at airports with uh, with raw pig heads, with uh, uncooked sausage. Right. Uh, we've actually got a, a beagle brigade now in all our international airports to go around and, and sniff the luggage looking for pig parts. Uh, oh, it's a through that. I didn't know it was amazed, pig You'd be amazed what they come up with. Um, unfortunately, all, all it's going to take is somebody to fly into San Francisco uh, mm-hmm. with a bunch of uncooked sausage and they go through customs and immigration and they find it and it gets confiscated, uh, gets thrown in the trash. It's taken down to the, uh, the landfill, the Guadalupe landfill down in San Jose and gets thrown in the landfill down there. Well, happens to be that there are several thousand wild pigs that forage in that landfill every day. Landfill's not fence. And all it's going to take is one of those to ingest that contaminated uncooked pork. Uh, and then you've got ASF in our wild population. And we've never been able to deal with 
disease outbreaks in our wild population very efficiently. We we're, we're, we're not that good with humans. So just like, <laughs> well, we're getting rid of uh, swine brucellosis and pseudo rabies, which is a actually it's a herpes virus uh, in our in the U.S. by the year 2000. And we achieved that in our domestic population, but we've never been able to do that with our wild pigs. And there are still endemic pockets of both uh, swine brucellosis and pseudo rabies uh, in our wild pigs. Um, Swine brucellosis is, it only affects pigs, but it also affects people. So uh, if people can track swine brucellosis, uh, brucella suis, uh, you have symptoms that are, that are very similar to flu symptoms. So you, you get these flu symptoms and, and, you know, you you get through it like you normally do with the flu and another week or two and it's gone. And I got rid of the flu. Then a couple of months later, come down with the same symptoms again this time they're a little bit worse and but again you recover and the problem with with brucella is with brucellosis is that uh, our medical community has a lot of difficulty diagnosing it Uh, they they think it's the flu they think it's something else some other uh, pathogen uh, but they don't really land on uh, brucellosis and bottom line is there is no cure uh, and it will continue to, to uh, you're going to continue to show symptoms and it's going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. Uh, it won't kill you, but it will be so debilitating that you won't be functional. Oh, that's uh, terrifying. There, I was told by a friend who's a veterinarian that he personally knew of two veterinarians that both contracted uh, brucellosis and they knew what was in the offing form. There is no cure and they both committed suicide. So that's that's pretty serious. Uh, the other one that I was talking about, pseudorabies virus, uh, um, PRV, is something that pigs get. And young pigs tend to, you know, the fatality rate tends to be a little bit higher with them. But the older pigs, they, they get sick and you can have aborted litters and whatnot. But very often they'll survive it. Uh, however, if another mammal be it a, a cat or a dog or a rabbit or, or uh, another carnivore uh, gets pseudorabies, it's basically 100% fatal. So if you've got wild pigs in South Florida that have pseudorabies virus, they're, they're carriers for that. And again, they, it may not kill them, they'll, they'll live. If they get taken down by a Florida panther and the panther eats the, the muscle from that animal, that's a dead cat. Hundred uh, percent. Hunting dogs very often when they when they uh, if you've got catch dogs that they go up and grab pigs and hold them till the hunter gets up there. Uh, if they grab an animal that's got pseudorabies virus and they contract it, that's a dead dog. So and it's just that's an impact that we're seeing with a, with a lot of our wildlife now coming from pigs. And again, there's no there's no cure a solution for that and we've not been able to get that under control sorry to be so grim <laughs> i just wanted to follow up on on blake's question asking about feral hogs and the problem in the united states and uh you've just talked a lot about disease being a problem overseas but i, I wonder if there are particular problems in other countries with feral hogs 
Oh, again, they do the same amount of damage over there that they do here, whether it's a native wild boar population in Germany or an introduced wild pig population in Georgia. Uh, okay. They're both cause the same damage to the environment. They're going to, they're both going to raid agricultural crops. They're both going to run into vehicles. They're both rare, but they're both going to mm -hmm. attack people. Uh, and then you're going to have all your disease impacts. So it's, it's the same right. in the native range as it is in the introduced uh, range for, for that, for that species. So, so um, of all the dangers, I did not hear you mention a uh, giant pig as one of the risks of, <laughs> <laughs> but yet but but yet. going back in time back to like i think 2004 was when the story of hogzilla hit the news and uh how did you get involved with that pig story and i and i'm guessing that once you did once you get attached to giant pigs they just keep glomming on to you right <laughs> all right so hogzilla was killed down on the uh, hatchery farm in alapaha georgia in june of 2004 uh, it went viral on the internet, you know, what was it, supposedly 11 feet long, a thousand pounds. Yeah. Uh, just, wow. uh, and they had this picture of this thing that they had, uh, uh strung up from, a uh, a front end loader. Um, I don't know, it was a backhoe, sorry, a backhoe. Yeah, backhoe. the same backhoe yep, we yep. used to dig up the remains. Uh, after all that went viral, a producer from National Geographic contacted me. And asked me if if uh, would it be worth going down and digging it up? Would there be anything to find? I said, yeah, well, you know, given the soil and whatnot, and and it hasn't been that long, that uh, yeah, you, you'd probably still have enough down there to to try to figure out. And looking at the remains, uh, you can figure out how big that animal was. You could take a pig skull and do a uh, a breadth across the the zygoma across the, the zygomatic arches and then do a cranial height, multiply those two together just to get a two-dimensional size of that cranium. And interestingly enough, it's got a, a very high correlation in R squared of like 0.91. One point, you know, 1.0 is an absolute one-to-one -one correlation. 0.91 is a very strong correlation uh, with the weight. So you can take a pig skull and, and you can actually come up with a, a fairly accurate weight of what that animal should be. So I said, yeah, yeah it'd be, be interesting to dig it up. So they said, okay, well, they wanted to go down and do that. I said, well, you know, that's a hoax. I said, I'm sorry, wild pigs just don't get that big. It just, there aren't enough good groceries out there. And the, you know, even <laughs> look at the size of that animal, uh, you know, look at the tusks, how it grew, was growing in a circle, you know, classic domestic, characteristics um and i said the real story here is not a big dead pig but I, what's happening with wild pig populations globally there's a pig bomb going off on this planet and nobody knows about it and so they very patiently listened to me for several months and then in november of 2004 we went down and and uh dug it up same backhoe they used to hang it up we we dug up the body interestingly enough um uh, because the tusks are so impressive, uh, they cut off the head and buried that in a different location because they thought somebody was going to come in and steal it. So they buried the body in another location. And so we went down with a backhoe and uh, dug up the remains of the, the body itself. And I took measurements off the body, uh, all of which were consistent with an animal of about 800 pounds, not 1,000. Uh, 
wasn't 11 feet long. Actually, the 11 or 12 feet long, whatever it was, they were measuring that when they hung it up with the backhoe, they were measuring from the tip of the nose all the way up to the foot that was tied to the backhoe. And that probably was 11 to 12 feet. That's not what you measure when you're talking about the length right, of the pig. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, we dug up the skull. Again, it was in a different location. And it uh, and I, I cleaned it up, I actually took it down to one of the ponds there and, and cleaned it up and took measurements. And again, the, the measurements on the skull were consistent with a pig that was about 800 pounds, not 1,000. So, um, and there was some disagreement among the folks down there as to, to what the, uh, what the validity of that weight was, you know, where it had actually come from. Um, so yeah, where do you weigh a thousand pound pig? You know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, so they, they, they finished the show and what they did was they took the hogzilla story and they wrapped the pig bomb around it very interestingly uh to to get that out which again in my mind was was the real story not not the the big dead pig uh and when it aired in april of 2005 that sunday night it was the most viewed explore episode ever on national geographic i saw it Uh, (laughs) cool beating out his nearest competitor by over 200% and the second most viewed show of anything on the national geographic channel ever Wow. wow. We, were, we were on Good Morning America the next morning, that Monday morning. Uh, oh, cool. <laughs> so then, so the uh, the other guy that was down there did a genetics workup and said, so this is an animal that looks like a big uh, reddish-brown domestic pig. And they did a genetics analysis, and they said it was part Hampshire. Now, a Hampshire pig is black with a white shoulder belt i didn't see that on hogzilla they also said that it was part wild boar so i'm i'm a little skeptical of the accuracy of that genetic analysis i'd love to have some of the researchers that i work with redo that genetic analysis i I bet they would come up with a more Mm -hmm. accurate answer Uh, maybe it's right but you know the animal itself didn't look like it fit that i mean obviously genetics can be real tricky but if if a domestic pig and a European boar crossed, I would expect it to be smaller, not bigger. Is that a mistake? Well, again, depends on how many, you know, yeah. you know how how young was it when... Well, there you go, when yeah. You, when you stuck in the pen and, you know, did you stuff it full of Purina pig chow until it well, got to be old enough? You mentioned uh, that. that I wasn't part of the documentary. This is, I'm trying to remember from 2004 or five, but that the place where the pig was living was a fish farm with high protein a fish farm. Yeah. yeah. So their, their claim to fame was they were the home of the giant Georgia brim. They had uh, basically a, a Lacoma a bluegill that uh, I, I forget how big it was, but it was something like eight pounds. So. That's an enormous um, brim. But <laughs> that's an enormous brim. Yeah. I, I would, I, you know, I'm an avid fly rider. I'll admit I've never caught a brim that big. Uh, they also had an active pig hunting operation. Uh, Did this serve they, as any form of advertisement at all? Did that help? <laughs> uh, oh, they tried to make the most of it. I bet they it, did. When it came out. Yeah. The, the, the hatchery farm is is right along the uh, Alapaha River. So... Um, 
Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur <laughs> injuries, paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And again, they had these commercial pig hunts. Now, several months after, uh, still the summer of 2004, uh, Kent Kamemeyer, who's retired now, he, he was the, the biologist for Georgia DNR that was the, was the wild pig guy. He was the guy that handled all the, the wild pig studies and, and uh, any wild pig questions or issues or whatnot. They went to Kent. I've known, known him for a long time. Uh, after all that came out in the news, he said a guy showed up at his door and said, let me tell you about that big hog down in Lapaha. He said, I was down there in April and to hunt wild hogs, you know, their, their claim to fame is they have, they have huge pigs and they put me up on a stand and I was there all day. Didn't see anything. And they came and got me in the truck, uh, picked me up and, uh, they could tell I was a little bit disappointed because I didn't get anything. And they mm -hmm. said, do you want to kill a big hog? And I said, well, yeah, that's why I came here. And so they said, okay, well, go ahead and get in the truck. And they took him to another part of the property and went out into this, this open field in a forested area. And they said, okay, well, get your rifle and get out and stand right there. And he's thinking, this is a little strange. He swears that they then went over to the woods line opened up the gate on a pen he hadn't seen when they pulled up and they herded out the exact same animal herded it over next to him and they said okay there it is shoot it and the guy claimed to have said well that ain't right i'm not doing that it's not what hunting's all about and they were a little bit pissed at him but they then tried to herd the pig back in the pen and they finally got it back in the pen but it really wasn't crazy about going back in that pen so you can only imagine that that happened again at some point in time. And 
they couldn't get it back in the pen. It was a big pig. It, yeah. You know, any pig that size is not something you're going to just push around and, and make go where you necessarily want it to go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as they're standing there, and they must have bought the pig from somebody, uh, as it was walking off into the Alapaha River Swamp, uh, you can imagine that Ken Holyoke, the owner of uh, uh, Hatchery Farm, turns to his trusty assistant there, Chris Griffin, and says, shoot that thing before somebody else does, which is exactly what he was quoted as saying on the National Geographic special. Interesting. So I'm sorry. I just don't believe it. It's a, yeah. you know. It, it, that's the, that's the that's the true story of Hogzilla. I was going to say it's it's an awfully mm-hmm. fishy yeah. pig story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but and quite uh, honestly, the more the morphological analysis that I did on the skull, uh, it came out as one hundred percent domestic pig. Uh, so, yeah, there you go. So that started it all. Okay, okay. so that started this explosion <laughs> of monster pigs. Uh, the next one was. Uh, was just south of uh, Fayetteville, Georgia. Uh, Blake noticed all these things are coming out of Georgia, right? I have noticed <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> Something's going so the on. Next one, the next one uh, was, a, was a big pig that was in a suburban area, the Brooks neighborhood south of Fayetteville. Uh, huge black pig. Uh, guy shot it. Uh, they called it the son of Hogzilla. They called it uh, the Brooks Beast. Um, I went down there and, and met the guy and, and actually got him connected up with the tax service. We did two different TV shows on that one too. Uh, again, it turns out that, um, morphologically this, this animal again was a hundred percent domestic pig. Uh, the director of the Fayetteville animal control called me after, I think the first TV show that we did. And he said, let me tell you about that pig. He said, we know, we know that pig. Uh, it was owned by a guy who was getting divorced and to mess with him, his wife would go over to his house and open the gate and let all his pigs out in a a suburban area. And he said, the, he said, we caught that animal twice. Uh, the first time it, it went in the trailer, no problem. We brought it back put it back in the pen. Second time was a little bit harder. Uh, and well, we got it back in the trailer, got it back home. And he said the third time was the Friday before it was shot. <laughs> and we pulled up with the trailer, the pig saw us there and said, uh-uh, and took off running. Mm-hmm. He said we, had, we were actually actively working on a contract to bring in uh, somebody else to try to catch the pig the following week uh, when it was shot. Wow. Uh, he said it was a very nice animal. wasn't wasn't mean, uh, but it was big. Yeah. And the concern was that it was going to run. It was it was loose, so it was there day and night loose. And the concern was it was going to run in front of somebody's car, and there was going to be a serious accident. So he's going to get hurt. Right. Right. So they were trying to get it captive, and unfortunately, got shot. Oh. So again, uh, so much for the for the monster wild pig story. Right. Uh, I guess the one that received the most grief was uh, was Monster Pig, uh, and that probably was another like the Son of Hogzilla. Probably was an animal was about a thousand pounds. It was a big pig. Uh, morphologically, it was uh, it was hundred percent domestic. And when the story finally came out, what happened was uh, um, 
Jason Stone, uh, his father had uh, arranged a hunt for him on a, on a hunting preserve uh, who said they had a large wild pig that, that they were willing to uh, bring somebody in and charge him to go hunt. And the kid went in and hunted it with a, with a large centerfire handgun, um, made the news, again, a large animal, but ultimately the, the truth came out. The people that owned the pig, the couple that owned the pig uh, came forward and said that, no, this wasn't a wild animal. Uh, this was a domestic boar that we had. Uh, his name was Fred. Uh, yeah. Oh man. He was not a particularly nice animal. He was always breaking out on us. Uh, he was mean to the sows. He would beat up the sows uh, in trying mm. to, to breed them. Uh, we didn't like him. He wasn't a nice animal. You know, not, not an animal you want to have on your farm. So they sold him to the uh, to that hunting club, hunting preserve, and they then offered him up as uh, as a game animal. And, and uh, Jason Stone went in and shot him. So. Mm. Um, so much for these monster wild pigs. They just don't exist. I'm sorry. Right. You, know, right. you know, when the truth comes out, uh, yeah, pigs are big. Pigs, you know, the mm -hmm. largest pig ever documented was Big Bill back in the 1930s. He was 2,200 pounds. So pigs can get big. Wow. Well, a wild pig, 800 pounds, 1,000 pounds, no. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. That's just not going to happen. I just, cool. like I said, there aren't enough good grocers out in the woods to make that happen. <laughs> So with these three stories and, and the others that you've been mentioning, what did the media get wrong about these giant pig stories? Well, initially, uh, the media just bit on the fact that they were uh, validly wild animals, where they were validly wild pigs, uh, and they just ran with that. And, right. you know, that's... This, this my, was... advice, my advice to the media would be you really need to with stories like that you really need to vet what it is you're talking about rather than just you know bite it hook line and sinker and run with it because then you wind up looking like a fool after the fact they, they don't they don't seem to care like they don't do any work on a story that seems fun and sensational and then when it's wrong they don't seem to be aware that this knocks their credibility but yeah, you don't, we'll you don't be accountable yeah. yeah i i so weirdly, you know, as a monster enthusiast, I honed my photography research skills on ghosts and Bigfoot. And so when I saw these giant pig things, it was so obvious that there was forced perspective in every shot, like every one of them. Mm -hmm. The animal was closer than the hunter to the camera, which makes them look bigger. And that's normal bigger, for yeah. fish photos and this and that. But if you're claiming that you've got something that's extraordinary... You would think that there would be some bar of, of 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 at least minimal investigation into whether this was a true thing or not before you paste it all over the news. But apparently not. Uh. <laughs> no, the, the, yeah. news, the news media is in a constant race to get out stories. Yeah, not anybody yeah, else yeah. in the news media. So even back then, that's a good point. Yeah, they're looking for the the most sensational, the yeah. most unusual, mm -hmm. uh, and you know they don't take the time to vet some of their stories and they run with it and, and then they oddly enough don't retract it later on when the truth comes <laughs> no, out. You no, know, you get never. a Rhonda Shear that, that really went after monster pig. She, she went after monster pig and, and the stone family. Uh, 
I actually had the the skull on on loan from the from Mike Stone uh, for a number of years when I, I measured it and, and I used to use it in talks and whatnot. And then uh, one day Mike called me up and said, uh, "Would you mind shipping that back?" I said, well, "Of course, it's your skull. I mean, I, I yeah, it's not mine." Uh, so we we went ahead and, and uh, UPS it back to him, and they sold it. Uh, and basically paid for um, for Jason's college education. Well, so good for him. What? Figured out. Wow. There was something good that came out of it. Golly, I, you've this has been so informative, and I really appreciate Very. you taking so much time with us. Uh, I I feel yes. like I've learned a lot, and uh-huh. uh, and sort of scratched them too. Yeah. Also, <laughs> I bet I bet they did. I I hope they did. Uh, but we do have a final question we like to ask our first time guests. So. Uh, hopefully you've thought of this a little bit, but what is your favorite monster? Oh gosh, there's there's no question about that. The Loch Ness monster, Nessie. Come on. All right, you know. okay. <laughs> sore that survived in in one of the the the, the Scottish locks. Yeah. Uh, oh. That, that's, that, that's, such a, that's such a great story. It's a favorite of ours. Yeah. It was. It, it's still. Even, we've been doing this for what, thirteen years, a long time. Twelve, thirteen. Yeah, years. something like that. It's been a minute. But <laughs> one of our early episodes was about Nessie, and and it's kind of my elevator oh, yeah. pitch for the whole show is, you know, mm-hmm. we could have talked about is Nessie real, but instead we thought if it were a plesiosaur, what would it be like? So we had a paleontologist come on and tell us. All about plesiosaurs, and I learned so much, and I still, mm-hmm. I, I still marvel at that episode. It still holds up so well. But oh, uh, yeah, one of the best. <laughs> yeah, so good. Anyway, this was fantastic and a, a wonderful addition to the show. Thank you so yes. much for your time, and thank you so much for thank your you. decades of work on this topic. That you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, tomorrow when I have sausage and bacon, I will be remembering you. What I'll <laughs> be remembering you when I don't. <laughs> Thank you so much. Have a great Thank night. Thank you, Jack. Yeah. Thank you. You too. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard part two of our two-part interview with Dr. John Mayer about feral hogs and the facts behind the media sensation of alleged thousand-pound porkers roaming the farmlands of the United States. We appreciate Dr. Mayer making time for us and helping us be better informed about this topic, and also alerting us to the real dangers that may come from feral hogs and how hog diseases are poised to change our lives if they get through our borders to these populations. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening. 
This has been a Monster House presentation.